Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Tulsa World Opinion Podcast. I'm Jenny Graham, the editorial's editor. I'm Bob said editorial writer and columnist. True. Um, you know, this <laughs> week was sort of like, like low-key compared to what we've been used to. So I don't know whether that's good or bad, but there's still big things happening. Oh, yeah. So, still enough to get the board kind of riled, kind of involved. And uh, the big news, and it was out yesterday, it was a fe- the federal audit of the, they, we call it the gear funds, but it's the governor's portion of the COVID relief money for education. So this was, and he divided it up into like four or five areas, and it was about 40 million. It was 39.9. So, mm-hmm. and we knew that it was under investigation and finally came out. It did not look good. It was no. it was damning, I would say. And I, it hasn't gotten the kind of traction or attention that I thought it would, which I don't know whether this means Oklahomans are just used to federal investigations. Are we just, is this our norm, you think, that that news like this doesn't, doesn't track with people? <laughs> but I mean, seriously, I mean, it's, okay. So to, to sum up, of the 39.9 million, 8 million was sent to the Department of Education. That is the only portion of that money that federal investigators found to be spent appropriately. The other 31 million, at best, they said it was such sloppy paperwork and and management that we can't determine whether it was misspent or Mm -hmm. it was misspent. And the part that was misspent was the portion overseen by Secretary of Education Ryan Walters, which we'd sort of heard this before. Mm -hmm. His portion was to allow parents to go online, low-income parents, and buy school education things that they need for the pandemic. Mm -hmm. But they were buying things like Christmas trees and car stereos and those kind of things. TVs. TVs, power washers. And at the time, both Governor Stitt and Walter said, well, it's the vendor's fault. The investigator said, no, it's your fault because you clearly had an opt-in to put some parameters on there, some guardrails, like a pre-approved list. And the state said, no, we're good. Led to all kinds of problems. But the other money was largely for school, private school vouchers and uh, virtual charter schools. And all of it is now under a full, fuller audit to try to determine where the money went. Mm -hmm. And that's a huge... And again, I go back to the question, Bob, are we just used to federal investigations or why, why, why do you think this doesn't, hasn't popped up on more people's radars? I mean, we've done stories, but when you track to see if it's resonating or if people are reading it, yeah, I'm not sure. Is it summer? People aren't paying attention? What's going on? There's a few things going on just from what I can tell. So you're starting to hear in some circles who of of state government right now that it's like oh this is just a biden administration thing which is not really true but uh because this investigation started a little earlier than that but there's that they're trying to shove off the blame like they're coming to get like the federal government's bad even though we can't track money okay federal government being run by dems they're out to get the republicans all that kind of stuff so there's that I think, too, a lot of what the audit said was very similar to previous reporting. 
it just expanded it and clarified it. When you're talking about stuff like that, nuance sometimes gets lost. I found it interesting that in conversations that we've had, that the vendor was getting thrown under the bus on this thing. And even though it was pointed out that in other states where this vendor was used, they didn't have these problems. And the audit kind of confirmed <clears throat> it's not a thing with, what was it, Walt? Uh, was this it, was the Glass Wallet, but there are other vendors. And this, uh, the other money included other vendors. And they did say there was a problem with how the contracts are awarded. That yeah. there are no bid, there's no, there's not a lot of paperwork. Also, that there were, one of the corrections they suggested was to have a policy written out so state officials understand the regulations of federal grants. Shouldn't that have already <laughs> been done? <laughs> yeah, that, that seems like the kind of homework you would have done to make sure that you could get yeah. things going. But it, it narrowed down, the story narrows down, I say the story, just the situation has been narrowed down by federal auditors and saying, you didn't have any controls over what was going on here. It was just the Wild West with all this federal money, and we've got to, we got problems now. So <clears throat> whether people are taking that as something like, oh, they're just, you know, yada, yada, yada. Or is it a type of thing where they just haven't let it sink in yet? It was a very curious notation in that report that the $8 million that you were talking about that was properly spent by the Department of Education, or not Department of Education, but yes, yeah, State yeah, Department, Department of Education. Um, boy, look for some uh, campaign ads on that thing saying, hey, we spent the money right, says Miss Joy Hoffmeister. It's these other guys that didn't do it very, very well that are getting us in trouble. I mean, that was like on a silver platter type of it, it campaign is. grist for the mill. It is. But, you know, I think the difference is you have the Department of Ed, which they have, they've always had staff who understand public finance and in particular federal grants. Federal grants yes. are paperwork heavy. Everyone knows that you work in finance. I mean, that's part of it. I mean, if, yep. when it comes to public dollars, every single cent has to have a paper trail. And I think what you have on this other side of things is an administration that comes from private business and they just aren't used to those rules. And no. they aren't used to what tracking private grants means. And that if you can't do it, you'll pay it back. And Oklahoma, <clears throat> under that bit that uh, the Ryan Walters oversaw, they're expected to at least make Oklahoma pay back the 653000 which they know is misspent, but they haven't looked at that whole program. So it's very likely that could be increased. That means Oklahoma taxpayers have to pay for that mistake. And that's why no matter what public agency you're with, when it comes to a federal grant, you have to really double and triple your, your work and make sure it's in place. And I think that that might be the difference is that you just have an infrastructure in place in one agency that knew what it was. And these other programs that sort of popped up and were overseen by businessmen, largely. Uh, I don't know if any women were involved, but businessmen who aren't used to federal contracts. And they're used to just choosing a vendor rather than going through a bidding process. Those well, two different cultures here, because right. a lot of times in business, especially startup business, which I'm not saying that that's their 
their experience. But in business in general, you've got this culture of sometimes kind of fake it till you make it. You learn as you go. You you try things, you make mistakes, you try to fix those things and grow with that. Because ultimately, I mean, if you don't make it and you make too many mistakes, you, you're you out of business. You're out of business. And that's largely you, learn, you lose your money. Yeah. But, you, you know, if you learn from it, you succeed. When you're talking about government, especially when you're talking about taking money from the federal government in the form of grants and, and whatnot, there's no such thing as fake it till you make it. You follow the rules. You get to know the rules when they give you this money. There's always strings attached. There's always things that you have to abide by. And they check on you to make sure taxpayer money is being spent the way it should be spent. So it is kind of a collision of cultures that I'm not going to say this definitively, okay? But it's one of those things you get slapped the first time, you need to learn from that. If it keeps happening over and over and over and over again, you got to wonder if it's a question of, do they even want to learn from this? I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, we do have, and this has come up with the Parks Department with this Wadley's contract that is mm -hmm. under consideration or under investigation mm -hmm. also. And, you know, the legislature did take back a billion dollars in ARPA funds because they you know, criticize the governor for not being fast enough in that process. And that was the, another problem with the gear funds was we had to return $3 million because we just didn't spend it in time. Free money that we gave back. So and we still have know, we want, I want them to learn from work. it. I mean, you know, I, I hope that Oklahoma is not on the hook for more, but we're going to find out more because the investigation is going to go on. But the politics on this are going to be crazy. And we You're still right. have a pandemic center that doesn't work. Oh, the pandemic center. Well, you know, also the board pointed out and we pointed out in an editorial <clears> that the governor has is, is been one of public education's largest critics. He's yeah. ordered uh, an investigation and an audit, investigative audit into the Department of Education, which mm -hmm. is headed by his political opponent, Joy Hoffmeister. And then recently he asked for an investigative audit at TPS. Neither of those organizations have shown problematic you know, performance audits. We're now seeing under Stitt's administration, a lot of problems within his administration and how those systems are set up. So, mm -hmm. you know, the, the board's message was, look, clean up your own house here. You know, by deflecting on all these other audits, we, we would like to see some, some fixes there. And I know that with the Swadley's contract, Matt Pennell has, has suggested we bring back citizen oversight boards. Yep. That the governor can, and I love that idea. I, I don't, I wish we wouldn't have taken them away. The governor can hire and fire an agency head, but all that tedious day-to-day -day governing RFPs, contracts, have a citizen oversight board to approve that. Have some sort of guardrail or some check there that an agency head isn't sort of going rogue or may, or maybe not knowing what that person's doing. I mean, it could be that yeah. you hire someone it doesn't work out, but you don't want to, you know, tank the whole thing and have be under investigation when it could have been caught by a citizen oversight board. So, you know, you I, I, I back, back Matt Pennell's idea. Yeah, idea. give credit where credit is due. Mm -hmm. He got stung a little bit, as well as other people on the transportation side. And they said, you know what? Here's a better way that we're going to start doing things in the future. If we're going to give ourselves some safeguards so this doesn't happen again. That's right. called learning from your mistakes. 
Right. And so, so I, if, if things can come out of that, that's what we're looking for. So it doesn't okay. have to just be mired in this completely, you know, adversarial politics. Let's fix it. So yeah. um, speaking of Tulsa public, mm-hmm. I still have kind of a hangover from last week, you know, that, that seven hour meeting <clears throat> was something, but you know, the, the, the smoke has cleared a little bit. And we were talking about this earlier in the editorial board agreed to, to, to address that, you know, there ought to be lessons learned that just pointing out flaws and just this bickering, it's not good. Right. And the TPS board, while three members walked out, while three members, one in particular, did not do her homework to prepare for meetings and thought into this theatrics, in the end, another meeting, they got it done. It mm-hmm. took too long to get it done. It took too much theater. It was clear that there's political ideology and some personal things going on, but in the end they did it and we shouldn't ever do it again. It should not take that long. But I did see some areas, some bright spots. After the whole crowd left, after that contentious part, all of a sudden the drama dropped. The board members started communicating. They had, it was part of a bigger retreat where they had these two people from the uh, Greater Council of Schools, talk to them about management, talk to them about communication, a lot of student data was spoken about. So all those people out there who talk about if we just had data, if we just had the answers, well, stick around for seven hours. You might have learned a few. Mm-hmm. Governing's hard. Governing's boring. But it's there if you want it. So there was a lot of information that was mm-hmm. sent out or talked about after that. So we just sort of kind of came back as a board, as our board, because we want TPS board to run better and it's better for the city, better for everybody. And so between the training they're getting from the Greater Council of Schools and the Oklahoma State School Boards Association, which I didn't know all board members are mandated to get a certain amount of training from there, which is great. Mm-hmm. They have 15 months to do it. I think I say get it sooner than later because it goes over things like Open Meetings Act, finance, ethics. So... So I don't know, that was sort of what I, I learned that there were some board members who aren't preparing and they really need to prepare and start communicating with their constituents and administration and go to committee meetings and stuff like that. So that was my takeaway. I mean, what was your, looking back on it and talking about this editorial, what were your takeaways that we should have learned? Well, I would say this to anybody just public education, school boards in general, running a show like that is difficult, whatever district you're in. You know, it's never going to be easy. If you're a rural district, you got challenges. If you're a high-performing suburban district, you're going to have big challenges. It's not going to be easy. But nobody sails through tougher seas than a large urban district. It's difficult. It's hard work. And what I would tell people is that when you're going on these boards, yeah, there may be some things that you're concerned with. There may be some accountability that you want to see, but you don't start shooting your shipmates in the middle of a storm. <laughs> and that's what I gather from this is you literally got into a position of institutional paralysis because people were trying to make a point. That's not right. You've got to be able to pay your bills. You've got to be able to sign your contracts for your teachers and your support staff. 
you've got to be able to award a contract for these bonds that voters approved. These, this is the bare minimum of governing and to, for the sake of creating drama and making a point and getting likes and applause in an audience, you got into paralysis. Like you said, that can't happen again. That's ridiculous. You're not going to get anywhere and fix the problems that you see because, yeah, TPS has some issues. Everybody wants to see those test scores come up, graduation rates rise, you know, reading proficiency and math proficiency improve. You want to see better outcomes for your students. You're not going to get it by blowing a hole in the side of, you know, the SSTPS. It's not going to work that way. So right. I hope that in the future that people come together, even if they got different ideas of how it is, and even if they don't like the superintendent, you're still on the same team. And what happens in TPS matters for those kids. It matters for the city. That's the bottom line, not a personal agenda. Right. Well, and for those who do criticize the superintendent, that's a whole other issue. She gets yeah. um, evaluated separately. So deal with it then. But also what I noticed, and I wrote about it, there is a group of public education <clears throat> critics. And, I've, and some of them have gone to other board meetings of other places. So it's not just their anti-TPS. They're doing this at other places. And I and some of them live, live in the district, but they're loud. They're chaos creators. And I think that they, they create, I think they revel in chaos. I think I put that in the editorial that they're yeah. not really there to solve problems. They're there to bully the administrators. They're there to bully people at the school. They're not there. And it's complete, complete gaslighting. If you hear someone in that group say, we're just here to ask questions. You're just not used to tough questions. Like, no, I'm usually the ones asking tough questions. You're gaslighting. You're trying to put that back on me when you're the newcomer. You haven't paid attention and you're here because you heard Tucker Carlson talk about woke whatever. Right. That's gaslighting if you hear that. They're not there. They're not volunteering in schools. They're not there doing anything except for just shouting and clapping and repeating talking points from some right-wing thing, and I'm done with it. So I hope that the board can ignore all that rhetoric. It's coming from this group, but you'll get other people mad and they'll show up on the other side. You have to just put that out and get the job done because the, the political race, that can be fun, but that's just one side of the job. Once you get the job, then the hard work begins. And I find some people like the fight and they like the race, but when they get to the job, it's, oh, yeah, half-ass it. We don't need our board to half-ass it. So we hope we can move on and do better because our city needs it. No one wants to move to a city where the people are fighting or no one wants to send their kids to a board to a school where the board can't get along. And most, most of all, people won't want to come work for TPS. If that board didn't get it together, who would want to come work there? So right. get it together. We hope it goes forward. So, you know. Let's, let me throw this out there, too, just for fun. Mm -hmm. I've talked with board members from various districts, and their political ideologies would be what they may. Mm -hmm. You know, we've got some board members in, in all districts throughout the metro area that are pretty conservative people. Mm -hmm. You know, Republicans, conservatives, they line up with conservative ideology on all kinds of things throughout life, mm -hmm. but they still function 
in terms of what they do on the school board. So this really isn't even a conservative liberal thing. To the point that you say, I think you don't get credit for trying to reform the system when basically you show up to light it on fire. Mm -hmm. I'm not having that either. I don't yeah. buy that. I think it's disingenuous. I think it's kind of attention seeking. You know, if things go down the tubes because the chaos is too great to run a school district, who's really a fault there? They get to walk away. It's the rest of us that got to deal with the mess. Yeah. So, well, moving on to the, to another editorial this week, I was I was intrigued. I think you were too. That City Hall is going looking at. <laughs> they probably will implement metal detectors for their buildings. Mm -hmm. They've used those metal detectors for things like council meetings and other events, but now they're going to require it. Just like if you go to the courthouse, you have to everyone walks with a metal detector. Federal buildings do. I'm frankly surprised City Hall hasn't done this before now because yeah. they've got four private companies in that high rise, all the business. So we back that. I think that's overdue. I think we're going to see that more because, you know, it's a way of things with people and their guns. But there is one, another part of that safety measure that's sort of interesting is the city, city officials are looking at designating an area nearby for demonstrations. And it's, it's two, uh, the point is they want to, two things. They want to secure that area better for demonstrators. That if it's in a controlled area, they can secure it better. And that it prevents people from impeding the entrance into City Hall, which I get people shouldn't be blocking interests and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But I'm sort of on the fence. And I think that the board was a little bit on the fence that we want things safe, but we also recognize people have a right to assemble. People have a right to free speech. And we don't want the unintended consequences to be, because I've seen this, especially in courthouses, where they'll have like an invisible line, like mm -hmm. don't cross, don't cross that line. And there's no rhyme or reason. And then if you take a step out, and then they'll arrest you. So we don't want someone who's just, you know, maybe three inches outside the boundary to then be arrested for something. And they're not really impeding anything. But at the other hand, I mean, we do want safe things safe spaces. And so I don't, I think the counselors are going to have to sit down and really weigh the loss of First Amendment freedoms, because frankly, we've got a lot of people who want their Second Amendment freedom. So mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know. We, I think we just sort of came down to <laughs> cautioning the, the city counselors on how that's written to, you know, just consider unintended consequences. So that what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I, I can't, I don't really know personally where I come down on the design and also designated demonstration space sounds a little controlled. <laughs> you know, it is not, a little controlled. Not, it's not very, you know, we're fighting the power, but only in this area, we're going to follow the rules. <laughs> you know, it seems a little yeah. anti. I, I, think, uh, I think it really depends on your, uh, your take on the nature of protest. Yeah. So there's going to be some people that are going to be like, you know, you get to have your say, you're from here, you're in this area, you're free to say what you want, assemble, have the signs up and stuff like that. But there are other people whose view of protest is like, you know what, if we're just going to be shuffled off to where we can be ignored, it's not really what we're after here. It's not our goal. Protest by nature being disruptive. Right. You know, we are here and we are going to disrupt things because we want to make you listen to us. We don't want to be just shoved aside. So 
Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, that's a good point because that was, I have seen like designated, especially when you get into like abortion clinics, there are always these like areas where you'll see protesters. But at <laughs> one point I remember there were some protesters that got tired of standing. And so they wanted to like install benches. And I'm like, I don't know. I mean, if you're installing like chairs because you're tired mm -hmm. of demonstrating, maybe, maybe find someone with some more zest. I don't know, because I'm, I'm with you that the whole point is to get attention to whatever your cause is. And I mean, there's still things where you have to get permits if you're going to be clogging streets and stuff like that. So we're just right. talking about small gatherings in front of City Hall for whatever reason. But yeah, that's, that's an interesting thing. analogy because, you know, let's say with the abortion clinics, which no longer exist in Oklahoma. Yeah. Um, there was a concern of like, all right, you're talking about patient safety, patient security, mm -hmm privacy and stuff like that they got people just like yelling at him right in their face right up until they enter the door um you know do you hold them back so so people can freely enter without being harassed take that turn to the city hall thing and are we basically making the same argument you don't want people coming in to, to pay a bill or talk to somebody at the hall and you know they've got a weave their way through or pick their way through or force their way through a group of uh, agitated people and start a shoving match just to get through the doors. I don't know, man. The lawyers are going to have to pick that one apart and yeah. just kind of see how it goes. Yeah. So speaking of being outraged, you write a piece this weekend mm. for the Gen Xers. The, our, us, our people, the Gen Xers, the most, what, the most overlooked and underappreciated generation of all time. And so Jan you, Brady uh, of age groups. We can, what was it? I said that you, we can drive a stick shift, dial a rotary phone and still build websites and rockets. That's awesome. right. No one pays attention to us. So why are you writing about Gen Xers now? Because they're paying attention to us now, baby. Because of Stranger Things. And by the way, of all the songs, really, Kate Bush, seriously? Yeah, I like that song. It's, I thought it was pretty good. You know, I was not uh, a Kate Bush person at the time. I've come to appreciate her, but my daughter plays that song a lot so oh, you yeah. know hey. current teenagers love it she also likes morrissey oh wow so yeah you're gonna be it's gonna be a very dour household for a while now. she does not like my duran duran i don't know what's wrong with her she'll put up with my rem she sees some some validity there you too it's okay you yeah, know I, I it sounds like your daughter's got a, a melancholy spirit no, but my son's all into Metallica. He was all about that. So, but what were your, I mean, what sort of, are you just kind of talking about it's our time? We're finally getting some attention. We're going to be blamed yeah. for all the wrongs of the world. Yeah. I mean, we haven't seen a Gen X president yet, but I think that's coming very soon, probably the next election cycle. Um, there's a lot of things that, you know, we've been able to just, let the millennials on one side and the baby boomers on the other side just have at each other. And we just kind of kick back and make our, make fun of them as Gen X has a tendency to do. You know, we're kind of a cynical generation, you know, <laughs> we're, we're okay with this and this or whatever. And, uh -huh. you know, being overlooked and Hey, y'all have that fuss. We'll just pull out the popcorn and enjoy it. But from a cultural standpoint, you're starting to see, you know, look at the advertisements that you see on television. Who are they targeting? They're targeting us. Uh -huh. Look at the music that they're playing. A lot of times it's the music that we were listening to. Uh -huh. This Kate Bush song comes up. I'm hearing it on the radio 
almost four decades after it debuted. That's crazy. And I don't think it was on the radio four decades ago. Probably it was on not college that much. Radio. Yeah, college yeah, radio that you had to tune in and have the tinfoil extended out my window. Right. Yeah. So you got like people. I don't know how much money Kate Bush has made off of downloads from that song, but it's like a second career. All of a sudden, uh, on another note, you mentioned your son saying your son totally into Metallica. You know, Stranger Things has a little a scene in there where the guy is playing the guitar for uh, Master of Puppets. This was when Metallica was a thrash band and not just what it, they've turned into now. All of a sudden, people are really interested in 1980s Metallica. So, hey, I think that's cool. But what that tells us, too, is that we've just kind of, we're in our peak earning years. We're in leadership positions. You know, we're at the tip of the spear in terms of business and government and culture and all that kind of stuff in a lot of ways. But that means that we're just not along for the ride anymore to pick at you know, the things that older generations have done wrong. You know, everyone's looking at us now. And yeah, we that's have a to, weird we spot have, for us to be. But every generation leaves a little bit of a mess for the next. And I think, <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, yeah. it is. we're going to leave yeah. a mess for the next one. That's just the way it is. So I think mm -hmm. you have to kind of look at what can we do in the space that we have left. I, I mean, think I we have are. at least 15 or 20 years left of, of my working time unless that lottery comes through and it's not it's yeah. not a good retirement plan but um, but it's an interesting point i was and you actually quote you quote from reality bites so I people did. Will enjoy that and by the way i'll just be on record the wine on a writer character ended up with the wrong person she just did i'll stand by that I so i'll disagree. just think about it just just you know as you know an older person so at the same time the ben stiller character definitely definitely uh messed up her show but you know yeah did it wrong that movie doesn't hold up quite it, it's sort of like i'm re-watching it again and i'm like as an adult going god i hate all these people they are just whiny and and i loved it at the time so as a 50 year old watching reality bites i'm like Man, i don't you know, know. These, these people need to grow up you know what that's boomers talking to millennials avocado toast and all that stuff and you guys made applebee's die or whatever they are always these weird <laughs> critics of i know millennials I know. and the things that make that annoy them about millennials and i'm gonna go on the record and saying i'm a big fan of the millennial generation yep they're all right they don't get they don't get enough they don't get enough credit they're all right i always yeah is gen zers we'll see We'll so I wrote about, about and I was thinking, and I mine is really about COVID, but it's actually about my mom. But uh, and I meant to, she just she gives me so much to write about. But she COVID cases are on the rise. I mean, we are now we yeah. went from the lowest transmission to like the highest in a very short amount of time, like mm -hmm. a two hundred and fifty percent increase in transmission rates in what a month and a half. So yeah. you know we're back where we were. Our company we're back mm -hmm. on COVID protocols. We now have to mask if we go into the Tulsa World Building. We have mm -hmm. to limit visitors, one person per, you know, on the elevator at a time. So a lot of us are just shifting back into distance learning, in distance learning, we'll maybe doing that, but distance working, which we can do pretty easily now. I mean, we sort of got, we have that dialed in. But my mom, she had gone on a cruise a few months ago, sort of at the beginning of this. 
And as I said, four people left to go on a cruise. Three of them came back with COVID. And it, they got it while either on route or on the cruise. But they determined that my stepfather had it on like the second day of the cruise. So here's the question that they, and they had to decide this. Because he had COVID, even though he was asymptomatic, he got tested for a whole other thing. But if you have COVID, you got to go into the isolation rooms. Mm -hmm. And these are just regular hotel rooms, but it's on a cruise. So you got like five channels, spotty Wi-Fi, and it's just pretty basic. He's going to be there for 10 days. And they gave my mom a choice. You can either stay in there with him, but you can't come out. You got to be there in the whole time because she did not test positive at that point. Mm -hmm. But the assumption is if you're in the room with him, you may catch it. So you're going to stay there or you can stay in your room, roam free. You got to be tested every day. As long as you're not negative or not positive, you can stay out. So as a person married and in committed relationships, I would have chosen, yeah, I'm going to stay separate because, and my husband agreed, we've been married 24 years. But we just know, I mean, 10 days in a room, and I don't know, it's its like we love each other's company, but that that might have tested us a little bit. So yeah. if, if I were the one with COVID stuck in the room, or if he were, we both would have said, you go enjoy yourself until you have to come back for some reason. What would you have chosen? Would you stay or go? Ooh, gosh. Small hotel room. Man, I would have felt Five really, I would have felt really bad about going, but at the same time, if it was like I was positive and the shoe was on the other foot and she was negative, I would say, you know what? If you want to be free of this, uh, yeah, don't get stuck here because this is going to be boring. And that's where I was like, whether I was the one stuck or not, my mom is different. She chose to stand by her man. She ended up getting COVID, but she she was completely asymptomatic. So was he. You know, it was wild when I read your call. Uh I'm reading the first parts of this and I'm like, man, this reads like, you know, January 2020 when cruise ships were just like at dock in these cities in Japan or wherever, you know, these people trapped on this boat with this disease. And then you read down there later, it's like, oh, no, this just happened a few months ago. Yeah. It's almost like we as a species never learn. Never learn. But <laughs> here's the kicker. But here's the kicker. This is my mom, though. So, and she's sending us these email missives that sometimes get through the next day, sometimes don't. But with each passing day, it gets bleaker. It's girls, my sister and I, this, this is just the worst experience. I don't know. And it just gets bleaker and bleaker. Now, granted, they ended up docking in Hawaii, which is they, where they are, and they took them all, all the the, the positive people to this place in Hawaii to, like, finish their isolation on a beach in Hawaii. So I didn't feel too bad for her. She, You know, if you're going to isolate the end, you know, might as well be on a beach in Hawaii. Yeah. But, yeah, she, uh, but, at the, but at the end, they had, like, traveler's insurance. Mm -hmm. They got some of that reimbursed. But the cruise line said, well, we can, you know, they're going to reimburse a certain amount. They said, well, we'll give you cruise credit so you can go on another cruise. My stepdad's like, I am never doing this again. This is horrible. I will never set foot on a ship. I'm done. My mom's like, well, I think my girls would love it. I think I'm going to get the cruise credit. And she's telling my sister and I this, and we were both 
like, I don't want to get COVID on a cruise and be stuck in a room because, you know, and she goes, oh, it'll be fine. Just don't go to the medic. If you go to the medic, that's what they give you. So I'm like, what did you learn? Just, just, just avoid the medic. I go, what if I had broke my arm? Oh, that won't happen. <laughs> so I'm thinking, oh, my mom. But uh, no, mm. we're not going to cruise. I'm like, I love oh, it. It's horrible. So, but I wanted to mention some of the other op-eds this weekend. We've got uh, one from David Blatt, who was from the, uh, had founded and, and was the executive director of the Oklahoma Policy Institute. But now he's a professor, uh, a master of the Master of Public Administration program at OU. So he's, I consider him the policy expert in the state. But he writes an op-ed uh, pointing out the flaws in Governor Stitt's executive order about crisis pregnancy centers. That basically it's not, if it leads to some systemic, prop, you know, uh, things to help families, great. But it, he just didn't think it goes far enough. So he talk, writes about that. Rick Piper of the Bank of America, Tulsa, writes about how businesses can lead the way for embracing diversity mm -hmm. and just talks about how businesses, if they have all these different perspectives in business, it just, it makes it better. He goes, I've seen it firsthand and if the public sphere doesn't do it, businesses ought to lead the way. So um, I, this next one I found really interesting there was a program at Monroe Demonstration School last year where there, uh, the, Ed, the Ed Darby Foundation and Tulsa Changemakers got together and chose 12 students to lead a pilot project called the Monroe Philanthropist. They were given $10,000 donated to use however they want to improve their school. So these 12 middle school kids did all of this work on how they would best use that money in their schools. And they came up with some great ideas. They worked hard. And Alex Pascal, Alex Pascal of the Ed Darby Foundation and, and Andrew Spector of the Tulsa Changemakers writes about that. And what I and I'll tell you what I get out of that is that if more nonprofits would include the people they're trying to help with deciding how to do that your outcomes are going to be better. So often you have, you have nonprofits that have boards and people with good intentions wanting to help out whoever, but that whoever, the target group, they're never really included in as a board member, never really included in as a staff member to lead that. So this shows how if you do it, mm. it'll really work well. So read that. It's really yeah. fascinating. And um, anyway, I'm going to have a good weekend. Are you now? Too. Well, I hope so. <laughs> I mean, it's going to be pretty chill. It's going to be hot again. Yeah, I've gotten every fan in my room, in my house going. I would suggest that to everyone. It's <laughs> a house circuit. Well, because if you're if it's 108, it's never going to get down a certain point. So I'm just trying to make 78 feel better by <laughs> circulating the air around. So our master bedroom, the the cooling in there isn't quite as right. awesome as it is everywhere else. So there's a fan blowing, oscillating uh, on top of the dresser. The ceiling fan is going and a third fan kind of in the hallway blowing into the bedroom just to keep air circulating and keep things cool. It's like, okay, then. So we'll be writing about climate change, I'm sure, at some point. So 
Um, oh, yeah. Well, anyway, I hope everyone has a good weekend. We'll be back next week. I appreciate it. See ya.